Turn us on and the satisfaction's guaranteed. Frank Discussion with Passion on CJD 800. Tonight after 10.15, we talked to a fascinating young woman, Carmen Kissel-Verrier. She uh, is was an exotic dancer turned author. Uh, she wrote a memoir called The Butcher Shop Girl. She has such a fascinating life story that we have invited her on the program to share it. Uh, with us. That's coming up after 10.15, but first... Calling's not the only way to connect. The inbox is easy and always open at 514-800. Your text message is at 514-800. I'm just laughing at this one. My question is, when Dr. Laurie is sworn in as the new governor general, will the passion poet be reciting a poem at the ceremony? (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) As if. Uh, But thank you for the vote of confidence. Uh, All right, here's a couple of um, emails that I got. Dr. Lori, last night's show was truly a trouble Tuesday. My wife's sister was totally manipulated by a man who swore he loved her, but my wife saw through him, and no matter what she told her sister, she went as far as defending his actions. It was not until my wife could not take it anymore and she well knew he was sponging off of her, she confronted him in front of her sister. She did do a bit of homework regarding his past based on what she uh, was told by her sister. She tracked down his last ex-girlfriend who was more than happy to contradict a few things he told my sister. Uh, her sister. He did not break up with her. She broke up with him and he still owes her $2,500. He changed jobs and she totally lost track of him and was very happy that she gave her all his personal information so that she can get back her money. She told me he manipulates, uses people, and is a very good liar. She learned a valuable lesson with him. And this is on the the back of, uh, we did receive an email from a woman who's, I think we all agreed the guy that she was with was definitely... Uh, seemed to be using her, even though he said, you know, I love you and then acted in completely different ways. So I think that was, that just uh, triggered for a lot of people experiences that they have had too, where they have been misled or duped or scammed or, or what have you. Another email here, Lori, I've never emailed or texted you before, but have listened to your show from time to time. And many times you read things You read things that touched me, and some poems you have read have touched me very deeply. My husband works 8 p.m. to 8 a.m., four days a week, and today was his birthday. Happy birthday. He is my second husband. I lost my first in an accident many years ago. I have a 16-year-old daughter from my first marriage who had us both in tears tonight. Uh, Today is my husband's birthday, and we had his favorite dinner, and he opened gifts. The last gift came from my daughter. He was laughing and having fun. He opened it, face went blank, and he started to cry. I thought it was a framed photo. He handed it to me. My daughter had made a document on her PC and framed it that said she is adopting him as her dad. I never saw my husband cry and my daughter just hugged him. Dr. Lori, it was beyond beautiful. I know she will always love her biological father, but she told him, now you can never say again, you cannot replace my real dad because now you are my real dad. I am sure my first husband is smiling down on this. I just had to share this with you. 
That is such a beautiful, um, such a beautiful story, especially when it's a, 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 an older person that want, you know, that whole adoption process from an older person. It's like, there's a choice there. Right. And I have a friend whose daughter did the same thing. I think the, the daughter was in her twenties and, uh, was legally adopted at that age, you know, as an adult, uh, by the second husband of the mom because the her biological father wasn't in the picture. So, it, it, and it was just so touching. I remember her telling me that story and how touched I was, and I'm equally touched by this beautiful story. So, happy birthday to your husband, and way to go for uh, for your daughter. That that was a beautiful, beautiful thing she did. The passion poet sent in a poem. Somebody else had written me saying, hey, where, where'd the passion poet go to? Uh, sometimes he skips a couple of days. Got to give him a break sometimes. Uh, this pandemic is getting to us all, but there's something we forget. Many have been home every day, and this will have impact on your pet. Your four-legged companion has always been at your side, has been a source of comfort, a pet to hug when you cried. You may be going back to the office, leaving your pet all alone. This will come as a shock to your pet who helped make your house a home. Your pet has feelings, so give it some thought. A pet gives unconditional love that should count for a lot. I wonder, um, did something happen or what made you think of uh, of pets? But it's true. We we don't think of these beautiful creatures who, who have, for many of us, been such a source of comfort during... Uh, during these times. Absolutely. All right. This never really bothered me, but I can't, I can tell it's bothered some women I've dated, which can be a problem for reasons I'll get into. See, unless I'm really comfortable with a woman, I won't come when we're having sex or doing other stuff. So generally when I meet and date someone, it takes quite a while, sometimes weeks, sometimes a month or more, and a lot of different nights together for me to be able to come. Some women take it in stride and are patient, while it can make others uncomfortable or skeptical, which of course makes it harder to get to that point where I can come from sex. It's affected relationships with a couple of people I really liked, and basically, I don't want it to happen again. How can I finally address this problem, or should I accept it and accept the fact that it might turn off potential partners? So this is, this is really, uh, I, I like the way you worded this, um, but something that I see quite often, it's more common than, than you might think, just people don't talk about this, but for people, for, and, and not just men, but also women, the ability to have an orgasm requires the ability to completely let go. To completely let go, it often requires a feeling of ease and safety with the person we are with. This is true for many, not everybody, but many, many people. And sometimes it can take weeks or months before a person actually feels safe and unjudged and accepted to the point that they can be completely vulnerable and hence able to orgasm. There's nothing wrong with this. And there's not a particular solution to change this, except really give yourself time. I do recommend that once you start to get close with someone and they you, you see them as a potential uh, partner, then talk about this with your partner. Let them know preemptively before you even get sexual that this is how your body works, that this has nothing to do with your attraction to her or her lovemaking or anything. 
And if a woman doesn't understand this and won't give you the chance to get to that point, then maybe it's a good way to weed out the women that may not be um, good for you. I mean, you want to be with a partner who is compassionate and understanding. So very possibly this is a good way to kind of say, oh, okay, not passionate enough, not understanding enough. Next, um, it's your body's way of telling you, right? Your penis is kind of talking for you uh, in a way. Uh, Texter, uh, the poet writes in my poem inspired by a PBS show on pets and how the pandemic is affecting uh, animals. Just want listeners to consider their pet. I think it, it, yes, you're right. It might be start to become a problem once people do start getting back or going back um, to work. So thank you for making us uh, sensitive uh, to that. <laughs> Somebody wrote, Dr. Lori for Governor General. Yeah. Where are people coming up with this? Like, seriously? <laughs> uh, coming up, but we're going to talk with uh, Carmen uh, Kissel Verrier. She is an exotic dancer or was, wrote a book called The Butcher Shop Girl. Great book, a real page turner, fascinating story. A safe place to work out the kinks in any relationship. It's Passion with CGAD 800's Dr. Lori Batito. Tonight we find out about the life of an exotic dancer turned author. Uh, started reading the book, The Butcher Shop Girl. I don't think I've ever read a book with such vivid uh, details. So much so that there, anyway, well, I don't want to give too much away, but about the whole butcher part of it. It's an actual butcher thing. It's like a slaughterhouse. The details made me happy. I was a vegan. That's all I can say. But there's way more in there. Uh, and I'm very pleased to have on the show tonight, Carmen Kisselverier. I hope I'm pronouncing it right, uh, Carmen. Hi, Dr. Lurie. Yes, you nailed it. You got it. Verrier. You're French a little bit there. Oh. <laughs> well, you know, you, we are in Quebec right here. So, yes. Uh, and I should tell our listeners, you are Canadian. Yes. So, and I do yeah. speak French, too. But, exactly. Uh, you're, how about you? Do you speak French, too? And you live oh, in yes. Montreal, you must. Yeah. I, yes. Yes. It's my mother tongue, actually. Uh, but uh, like you speak with, you know, no accent and, and all good. So let's talk about exotic dancing. When we t when we say the word exotic dancing, let's define it first for, for our listeners and then we'll go into your journey. Yes, I think uh, the best way to differentiate it from any other kind of dance form. Um, you know, have you been to a Cirque du Soleil show in Vegas or Mm -hmm. The only difference I would say between them and an exotic entertainer is the level of nudity. So if you don't have, uh, if you have a very entertaining set that's coordinated to music that has a theme and a routine, by the time you're done with that, you are, depending on what country you're in, you're either topless or fully nude. So, I mean, that's the, the difference. So most people in our culture will call that uh, like strippers. Strip clubs. Yeah, absolutely. That's another another term for it, for sure. I, I okay. mean, even for me, I haven't been an exotic entertainer for about 22 years. So it's kind of like going back there to talk about it. I don't know a lot about how it works nowadays, but mm. I'm sure it hasn't changed too, too much. So this whole journey started for you when you were uh, like a teen. You weren't even barely an adult. Uh, how old are you now? 
I'm 42 yeah. now. 42. So you, it took you uh, quite a few years to put all of uh, all of this on paper. Uh, tell us about your journey into that world, because I mean it's unusual. Um, you traveled for this, uh, but then you, of course, had uh, all kinds of uh, adventures or misadventures. Tell us a little bit about well, your journey. Well, yeah, so getting in, I with the Butcher Shop Girl, I found that there's stories in there that I spent the last 22 years wanting to keep a tight lid on that I hoped only a few people in my small community where I was born and raised might know. And if enough years went by, then maybe it would be gone forever and forgotten forever. So when I left that world at 21 years old, I really committed to just building a different life and being uh, using all of that money that I had made successfully as an exotic entertainer for four years to craft a new life. And I, I was pretty good at keeping that part of my life tucked away until I kind of, you know, got closer to my 40s. And I often tell my friends there's something that happens to you as a woman in your 40s. You kind of don't care anymore and you're more interested in the truth. <laughs> And you don't care so, what people you know, think anymore, right? Yeah, you're just like, whatever. You know what? And this was fantastic, and it was awesome, plus a lot of goading from my really good friends and family members that encouraged me to tell this story. There's a lot of good things, uh, value to be had from this story if you could just share it and if you could get comfortable with sharing it. And a few years back, I started to think, yeah, you know, it is a pretty neat story. I opened up the book with a escape from a uh, you know, a pretty sketchy Bolivian uh -huh. cartel family. And then I take the reader from that huge pivotal opener and bring them back to the beginning of how a person, a regular Canadian girl growing up in the prairies could end up there. So that's, right. that's the number one question that everybody always had. You know, how did this happen? How did you get into there? And uh, yeah, so the book really details those remarkable, uh, even myself looking back on it, crazy chain of events. Right. And in reading it, it's almost like it just, like, I, I didn't even know how old you were right now. Like it sounded like you were, you just came back and you started putting it down on paper. Right, uh, but, yeah. and it, it, but it takes, like, how did you discover you even had the talent for writing? I mean, it's a, it's a well-written book. So storytelling yeah, is you. not something that's uh, easy to do for a lot of people. So how did you discover that this was something you could do? Well, from a very young age of not fitting in, because this is a book for misfits and mavericks, very, something I very much identify with, especially growing up as that awkward, unibrow, kind of look like a boy till I'm 12 years old kind of girl, books were my best friend. Books never let me down. So I was an avid, avid reader my entire childhood from a very young age. And okay. that was my escape. So I, um, after I uh, started to craft a life for myself and got married, I decided to try to even write for a local newspaper as a columnist. Mm -hmm. So I dove into that and did that for a few years. And then I moved on to being a freelance writer, contributing monthly article stories to various energy sector magazines. And did that for another few years. Then my husband and I started a few businesses and, you know, the kids got older and I put writing to the side and I just picked up again, probably about four years ago, and okay. became a technical writer, like a bona fide technical writer from Mount Royal University, then started another business. And I am a full-time writer all day long. I am a graphic artist and a full-time writer. So wow. I kind of thought, now's the time to do this. Now's the time to really, I have enough confidence to tell this story, 
because you, you can't, if you write a memoir, it has to have two things. One, it has to be interesting and it has to be true. So you can't have a boring book. <laughs> and if you're going to go down that road, you need to commit to being vulnerable and the good, bad and ugly has got to go in there. Exactly. So did exactly. That. Yeah. Right. It's all, everything went in there, right? There's no filtering, yeah. <laughs> uh, hardly any filtering. And I'm wondering, yeah. you say you have children. Do you think one day they, you will let them read your book? So my son is 17. He's about to graduate high school. I'm pretty sure he, he hasn't read it. He hasn't asked me to read it. I told him that he's at an age, he's going to be 18 in a couple of weeks, that he's more than welcome to. Um, my husband and I are pretty open-minded. We talk mm -hmm. to our children about anything and I kind of left it up to him to decide, but truthfully, you know, he could be a little bit creeped out by the whole thing because, well, that's it, just a lot to know. And our daughter right, is 11, so she's forbidden from reading it at this point. <laughs> right. It's yes. And it it's graphic. Obviously it's graphic. It's yes. scary in parts, very scary to, to read this. Oh my God, this happened to you, mom. Like you must've been terrified. I mean, there, you describe the, the terror. Maybe you can talk to us about how you ended up in Bolivia uh, and how yeah. scary and harrowing that experience was uh, for a 19-year-old who ended up there. I think I learned to take care of myself at 17 years old. I had my first apartment and was a pretty headstrong person. And I just needed to work and be an adult. And this contract presented itself to me from my agents, my booking agents, and they're not exactly the most truthful people either. They're they're agents for exotic entertainers. So you can imagine mm -hmm. the level of sketchiness that's Sleaze, there. right? <laughs> and you know, I'm I'm 19, right? So it was pretty easy to snafu one of their younger girls and send her off, you know, on this adventure that they didn't even really know how it would go. The the club owner in Bolivia was new to them as well, so it was a high risk situation that I really just didn't understand. Eesh. Didn't you and, fear that that didn't you fear that this might be or maybe you didn't even know about sex trafficking or that that was my first when yeah, I when I first exactly. read that I said oh my goodness this woman's going to be sex trafficked you know uh, that was the yeah. that was my first first thought in reading that I didn't even really understand that that you know coming from a farm and the oil fields a pretty pretty grassroots kind of upbringing I was so so naive Dr Lurie right. I I didn't. I didn't even think I really would have heard of that really right. happening much. There was there was an instance actually in a Niagara Falls uh, club that I spent quite a bit of time at as well that I suspected there was some girls there who they didn't speak any English at all. They didn't speak any French. They spoke nothing of English. They looked like mm. they had just arrived in Canada. And it was kind of like they kept to themselves. It's a very private, secretive world to begin with. And I couldn't really tell what, what was going on there behind the scenes. And I even tried to kind of dig in a little bit on one of those girls' stories that I, I felt like I had a connection with. And uh, it was just shut down immediately. So, uh -huh. and I mean, uh, at that point, I'm 20. So I'm right. kind of like, hey, you know, still that's not, not, yeah, still naive. <laughs> way over my head kind of thing, right? Yeah. Right. We're talking with Carmen Kissel Verrier. She is the author of The Butcher Shop Girl, tells the story. It's her memoir of uh, having uh, gone through a difficult childhood and then into exotic dancing all the way to Bolivia, where, geez, you were involved in some drug 
cartel thing. It was so messed, sounded Family. so messed up, yeah. but you had the good sense to run away, which um, was interesting that you managed to get away. Yes. And that, that really kind of came about by the love interest, the primary love interest in the book, a fellow named Tom. And that, that is his real name, who was a U.S. drug enforcement agent working mm -hmm. in the city of Santa Cruz, who happened to walk into that club one night with his workmates and recognized that it was very shocking to see Canadian and American girls there who, right. you know, looked like they were probably in a dangerous situation. So if it hadn't been for him and his big tip-off, um, which later blossomed into about a um, two-and-a-half-year love story, I don't oh. think it would have turned out so well. It really, just as awkwardly as I got there, was as awkwardly as I left there. Yeah, and running away. Thankfully, he told you about going to the embassy, the American embassy, and you kept that information under your hat. Yes. And then, you know, you were smart enough not to relinquish your passport. Like, you're a smart cookie. Even then, even though you were naive, there was something about your gut that was... Uh, that was working for you there, but uh, scary, scary experiences. And I just hope young women who may be listening to this, like, um, will pay attention, you know, pay maybe more attention, yeah. especially when you're young and you don't have too much experience and you're just looking after the, oh, here's a great way to make money and let me get exactly. an agent. And like, it's a sleazy business. And, you know, there's a lot of people in this that business who, like you said, can be quite... Uh, quite shady. We'll continue our conversation with Carmen Kissel-Verrier, the author of The Butcher Shop Girl, now available at all bookstores and on Amazon, uh, and a really fascinating, fascinating memoir of uh, an exotic dancer uh, turned author now, and much more, clearly. Uh, so we'll continue our discussion with her. <laughs> From the pleasure and the politics to the hang-ups and the heartbreak, you're listening to Passion, CJD 800. My guest tonight is uh, the very talented, entertaining Carmen Kissel-Verrier. She is the author of The Butcher Shop Girl. It's a memoir of uh, her time as an exotic dancer, what led her there. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful book, very uh, vividly written, rich, rich in detail. In fact, one of our texters wrote, I am ordering now. Sounds great. <laughs> uh, and I, there's another question here from a listener who says, my question for Carmen would be, is it widely, is it, it is widely known exotic dancers are heavily involved in drug usage. Is that her case as well? So uh, yes, when you were in Bolivia, there was, there was a, you know, drug cartel princess there or what have you, but that obviously doesn't mean you were involved in that. Um, did you ever get uh, caught up in that world of drugs yourself to be able to perform, let's say? Well, see, I talk a lot about that in the book as well, because that, that listener is right. It seems that many entertainers need something to, to consume, to get right with themselves, because they can't quite process what they're doing. Uh, mm. It doesn't sit right with them. It's just uh, off the cuff, maybe lifestyle or thought, but they don't tend to 
um, digest it well. So I never had that problem because for me, it was mercenary. I was very much about the capital to be made and using that to fund my life. So in the book as well, towards the end, when I become quite an elite earning exotic entertainer in very high-end clubs in Texas and um, down in the United States, I live with a girl whose name is Carla. And she is, you know, the, the first time I'd ever seen a sugar baby, she was a sugar baby before a sugar baby was a, a thing. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe a, a kept girl, but she also worked in the club with us. Um, but she would just literally go there one to two nights a week to kind of feed her sugar baby lifestyle. She was looking for a different type of patron, one that was looking for um, maybe a, to ease their loneliness or they were very wealthy. And I could never understand, even living so close with her, how she didn't want to, because like Dr. Lori, we're making anywhere from two to 6,000 USD a night. A just night? By being an, yes, just by being an exotic entertainer. So there's, there's none of that shady stuff going on if you don't want it to, and you can still make a lot, like this is 20 years ago. So wow. I try wow. to put it into context for the readers. So they can understand that this is right before online pornography is, is just developing. So there wasn't right. any, you know, any of that available. So going to the clubs or these types of places was the best place that you could go to kind of get closer to, to maybe gorgeous looking naked girls. Right. So was it, the money so, was phenomenal, mm-hmm. but I could see even then that I was kind of cresting out of the last epoch of that movement of the burlesque Mm. movement so i related in the book as something like you know the burlesque movement started in the mid 1800s or 1800s and it started off by showing a little bit of ankle and that was very sexy because (laughs) it's never been before seen it was risque and taboo and then it ended up all the way to what i was doing and i just thought and then even further from that would be the whole entire like bona fide pornographic world. So I always felt that exotic entertainment was a bit like the last stop at the train station before you could, you would dive right into that world. And of course, drugs are circling around there because it helps you to um, become inhibited so that you can maybe do those things. But for me, I guess a bit of a capitalist always, you know, even my family as farmers and ranchers ran their own businesses, but that bottom line. So I recognize at a very young age that I'm trading bits of my time because I want to amass this type of wealth and sure, I, right. you know, I'm not happy exactly about how I'm going about it. All of my friends are making their parents proud by going to university and, and here I am doing this. Right. 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 And it became such a interesting dynamic in my family and in my small community because they could see that when I would come home from being abroad, I had you know all this money and I'm not strung out. So it was hard for them to understand so, interesting that you 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 kept your eye on the prize which was the money exactly. and you and you didn't want to screw it up with uh with drugs i that's a lot of money that you made uh doing that now this was also around the time when let's say in quebec for example we saw a lot of lap dancing you know now yeah. now today every club is had to go that route to survive, which was uh, with with sexual favors in the back rooms or not favors, but you would buy them. So did you ever get tempted uh, to go further or 
Did were you ever drawn into that? So this is an unpopular opinion, but the reason there, there's two types of girls in that world. Some keep their eye on the prize and they work on themselves to be as appealing as possible to create that illusion and scarcity. Then the other girls are addicted and desperate. So, and they can still be beautiful. Like all of these girls can't be young enough. They're all gorgeous. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm talking when you're 18 and in these elite level clubs or 21 in the United States, you can't even get in there unless you are a 10. So, right. And the younger, the better, unfortunately, that's part of that industry. Um, And you understand the psychology why I'm sure. But sure. it's all about your level of, um, I guess, <laughs> way, dedication. What are you there to do? Is it a lifestyle for you or is it a means to an end or is it an adventure? And, you know, you don't have a husband, you don't have kids, you don't have anything holding you down. Well, great. Go for it, wild child, if that's what you want to do. But many of them lose their way or they can't find their way. So, yeah, drugs were always around. Uh, some needed it to sit right with what they were doing with themselves, to look at themselves mm-hmm. in the mirror. Some needed it to escape. And some were just having a wild time because they're 21 years old and they're a knockout. So really, there's a lot of different reasons why some will entertain those types of backroom favors. They're, if you're already making so much money every night, you kind of don't feel like you have to do you that. You have to. That right, right, right. Do yeah, that makes, like, that makes a lot of not, sense. And I and think Carmen, yeah, that's that was my question for you too about being uh, in control. And when I was reading the book, I got the sense very much that you, that was important to you to maintain control, which is, I guess, why you didn't go down the route of drugs or, and also the way you saw yourself was as a, like an, an elite performer. You, you had, you were trained in ballet, you, you actually put on a show. So you were often featured because you were able to put on a show. It wasn't just about, you know, TNA, right. It was about the show that you were able to produce. Uh, for that. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's where it's at. So with the, those types of elite entertainment uh, entertainers, you ha- you're investing thousands in costumes. You mm. are usually almost like a Cirque du Soleil performer where you have pretty much that same flexibility. Um, some of the most wildest things I've seen girls be able to do with their bodies was in that mm. time of my life. Like absolutely wild. Like before Cirque du Soleil was a thing. Or, right. you know, like, and the pole work, the acrobatics. I wonder often what it was, what it's like now. Like, you know, I'm just tempted if I was ever in some of these major cities, I would walk into their version of an elite club and see, like, is it still putting on a show or right. has it just degraded down to backroom lap dance, you know? Unfortunately, and, I, sure I think the latter. <laughs> I right. think the latter. But a texter wrote in saying, "Are you aware pole dancing will likely be a demonstration sport in the, in yeah. Summer Olympics?" <laughs> I know I will be watching. So you know, now we oh, have, of course, that? pole dancing classes for your average housewife. You know, yeah, uh, like, like, so it's a very uh, popular fitness. Uh, you know, it's yeah. it's taken on a new meaning now, right? So. It's a little bit different. Um, well, well coming yeah. up, coming up, I want you to talk to us a little bit about your upbringing because, like, it's interesting for me just as a psychologist. How does one's 
you know, how do you, how do you even think about getting into something that is so against, let's say your Catholic upbringing, right? Which I know is, is what yeah. you had. So coming up, we just have to take a short break to check on traffic, but I want to find out from you what your home environment was like that you think, I'm sure you thought a lot about this, but what might have kind of led you down that path. We're talking with Carmen Kisselverier, the author of The Butcher Shop Girl. She tells the story of her career as an exotic dancer, making loads of money and then, uh, you know, running her own companies after and doing all kinds of wonderful things and writing this, uh, this book. with Dr. Lori Batido on CJAD 800. My guest tonight, uh, the author of a new book uh, just released uh, recently, The Butcher Shop Girl. It is a, a memoir of Carmen Kissel Verrier. She is a Canadian, in fact, a, a part French Canadian. So it's nice to have a homegrown person that I can uh, speak to about these experiences as well. And uh, we have a few listeners already supporting you, saying uh, that the, the book has been ordered and that you're a very <laughs> captivating uh, speaker. So uh, I'm happy to hear that. And the book is, it's a really good, uh, really good read. So let's talk about your childhood a little bit, because I'm sure that is the question that a lot of people have is yeah. how does, you know, you're, you're an innocent farm girl, like mom has a butcher place and you spend your days in the butcher shop and, uh, and how do you end up here? Yes, it's, it's a wild story, I guess. Um, so a lot of people associate uh, exotic entertainers with somebody who hasn't maybe formed a, a bond, a healthy bond with their father. In my instance, my mother was like my father. My parents divorced when I was six. Mm -hmm. And uh, hers was pretty much the wealthiest, largest farming family in our northeastern Alberta corner of the province. Okay. Um, you know, growing up, I kind of thought maybe everybody's grandpa had a helicopter. They were very <laughs> humble, salt of the earth people, but very wealthy. So okay. that's my mom. She came from that value system. And my father, also in agriculture on a second generation, uh, beautiful, beautiful ranch. I, I describe my farm upbringing quite nicely for everyone in the book to, to, so they can understand that the beauty of the prairies mm -hmm. if you've never really spent some seasons out here. And, uh, yeah, you know, it didn't work out with my parents. They, they seem to be a, it, I was a shotgun kind of wedding. You know, they got married in April. I'm born in August. They tried for six years to make it work. It didn't work. My mom kind of, you know, left in the middle of the night with my brother and I, and she's the one that was in the position of power, not my father. Okay. And her father, and with his large farming conglomerate, uh, they had approximately, a, I think, a two to 4,000 head of cattle feedlot at the time. My grandfather also owned uh, the local auction house that kind of serviced quite a few counties and MDs around us. Mm -hmm. So the missing part of his operation was having, you know, an abattoir or a slaughterhouse or a butcher shop. Right. So my, he set my mom up with this business, and she, being a very type A strong woman, who's not going to take any guff from anyone, was immediately the general manager at about 23 years old. I'm wow. four at the time. Okay. So 
yeah, a lot of uh, severe disconnection from from our family as we knew it. I was far closer with my father and his mother and father and, you know, his brothers and sisters because my mom was always working. So when they separated and divorced, I didn't really have this bond with my mom. Like, she was just an atypical mom. She's not a... Right. She wasn't around. Yeah, right. she's working her butt off trying to make this leg of her father's empire uh, succeed. So that's where I went to, my brother and I went to live when they separated when I was six years old and my brother was four. Uh, he, as well, was a very young woman in a demanding position that's largely, you know, back then was regarded as a man's job. She was, you know, big and husky and blonde and blue eyed, and I'm like tiny and dark haired, you know, very French Mediterranean taking after my father's side. And we just were oil and water forever. We never really bonded um, Mm. properly. So in turn, I feel like she was a very masculine energy woman. I, you know, she struggled with her own young single mom, but it wasn't your typical single mom scene. And we were largely cut off from my father and his side of the family. So I didn't Mm -hmm. I guess I really didn't have a big relationship with my dad either, but geez, my mom was like my mom and my dad for everyone. Right. So, so you were quite disconnected from, from your family. Yeah. You, you were disconnected from support. Um, what gave you the idea that, Hey, Hey, maybe I should do some exotic dancing. Like you lived on yeah. a farm your whole life. Like how did you even come to yeah. that? So just rejecting life with my mother and, you know, going back to my, my father's farm when I'm 15 and I'm old enough to choose which parent I want to live with, I run straight to them and they receive me with open arms. However, mm-hmm. at that time, I'm just already quite a badass. I'm getting into a lot of trouble. I'm not taking school seriously. I don't look like a boy anymore. And things are just escalating out of control. And I, and I get, I become at 16, 17 years old, quite independent. I realize, okay. I figure life out. I figure out how this works. I can make my own money and then I don't have to succumb to my parental dynamics anymore. I can be on my own. So I do that. Um, you know, me and my uh, another girlfriend in the book, we get our first apartment at 17 wow. while we're in grade 12 trying to manage work in high school. And none of that is working well. I give up on high school just so that I can maintain my independent lifestyle of having my own apartment, my own freedom. And I throw myself into work. So I find an oil field job. Um, in our area of northeastern Alberta, it's farming and oil, pretty much the right. two major industries here. So oil was what we called sexy money back then, too. Uh, a lot of my friends were operators because we have oil wells all over the place. Mm-hmm. And they pay very good money for, um, you know, very limited experience to get out there and go check all these oil wells. And you're usually working a week on and a week off. So it kind of looked very, very enticing. Well, then I lose my job with that because the price of oil fluctuates all the time. And Mm -hmm. I was working for a junior producer at that time. And they're not stable like the big name producers are. So if the price of oil gets too low, they go belly up and we all lose our jobs. And then that was the end of making this really big money as I'm, you know, 17, 18 years old. And right. at that time, I incurred some debt. I got, a, I get a truck now. Now I have this apartment. And, you know, I've got this really great boyfriend who's working on the rig, but he's gone. So if I want to go see him, I have to travel and that costs money. 
So at the time, my best friend was working as a waitress in this little hamlet outside of our town because our French Catholic town would never allow something yeah. like a <laughs> strip club, like, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think people had tried and those permits were rejected over and over. Right, again. But, right. You know, all that stuff happens on the outskirts of town, you know what I'm saying? So anyways, this little hamlet on the outskirts of town was known for having this, uh, you know, this place is a total dive, um, big community spirit, tons of heart, but it's nothing to look at and kind of feels like you're in inside. Well, my girlfriend Kelly is working there as a waitress and she's making really big money and tips on the nights that the exotic entertainers are there. Oh, oh, okay. um, So it had... Right, right, yeah, right. So she's slinging beer there and she's saying, you know, I know you just lost your job and I know you need to pay your bills. Why don't you come be a waitress with me? Because no, no other girls will work there because of the stigma. It's, it's a strip club on the outskirts of town. And I kind of thought, oh, you know, my family, I've given them enough hell over the years. This is definitely <laughs> going to be the straw that breaks their back. They're not going to oh, be no. with it. Right. So I kind of thought, no, I'll keep it secret, you know, and I'll just make this big tip money that she's talking about, and that'll help me pay my bills. And I'm still directionless at this point. So one night I'm in there, and you see this beautiful entertainer walk in. She's, it's about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, so nobody's there. We're just getting ready for a sure to be busy night. Mm-hmm. Um, the the owner had been promoting that he spent all of his budget instead of on two girls, just on one girl because she's extra good. And right. her name uh, at the time was Hunter Holiday was the stage name. And she comes in, and I'm supposed to situate her, show her where she's staying for the night. I'm she's so beautiful, Dr. Lori, like just like jaw dropping, <laughs> gorgeous. You're wondering how did my boss book this? Even like right. these types of girls don't come here, and. I feel, I'm feeling so embarrassed all of a sudden that I'm introducing this woman to where she's going to be working for just a few days. And it's just such a dumb And I didn't know, uh, you know, I was falling all over myself, a little starstruck at her beauty. And uh, she, she took a shot to me and she said, well, you're, you're really beautiful. You know, why, why do you work here as a waitress? And I said, well, I don't need the money. It's really great money. And, and she said, well, you're really beautiful. If you ever wanted to change your life dramatically and never worry about money again, here's my card. And I thought, ah, oh, my gosh, she's And crazy. there it and is. No. <laughs> and there's, there's the big moment. There's so, the introduction. Yeah. Carmen, I swear I could talk to you all night. You are uh, – the book is captivating. You're captivating. Uh, I'm I'm happy you wrote it all all down for everybody else to enjoy. I've I've, I've gotten more texters saying it's got a five star rating, so <laughs> I just ordered the book. So whole bunch yeah. of people already. So that's lovely. Thank you, listeners, for well, even letting us thank know. Thank you so much. Like thank you very much. I appreciate every one of them. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we appreciate you, Carmen. It has been uh, uh, an absolute pleasure. Do you have a website, or if people, uh, I don't know, I like, do. are you on social? What is it? Yes, very active on all the socials. You can find me uh, largely on Instagram and Facebook are my largest page. I'm I'm on Twitter, but Twitter seems bizarre lately with everybody getting censored and canceled. <laughs> so I, I'm I'm not focusing as much there. Uh, LinkedIn. Uh, my website is fantastic. I suggest on a Saturday morning you pour yourself a coffee or a shot of wine and you sit down and check it out. What's the, the website? Shopgirl.com. Yeah. So www, the 
So ButcherShopGirl.com. And I would love for every listener to know that if you're not big into reading, you don't have a ton of time, we have an audio book that's dropping at the end of February. Oh, fun. Yeah. So we have a fancy uh, New York City Canadian-born actress who's narrating it. Her name's Claire Duncan. Wonderful. And uh, yeah, she's she's just really going to bring the butcher shop girl to audiobook life, to and life. we can't wait to share it with with everyone. Well, my my uh, prediction: this will turn into a movie very soon. Carmen, yeah, be great. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Really appreciate your time tonight. Lovely talking thank to you. So you. Much, thank you, Dr. Lori. Thank you. Uh, that's Carmen Kissel, K-I-S-S-E-L uh, dash Verrier, V-E-R-R-I-E-R. And the book, The Butcher Shop Girl. Website, thebutchershopgirl.com. Thank you all for listening and for texting in. Thanks to our producer, Chris Akins, tonight. If you want to connect with me on social media, at Dr. Lori Batito or through my website, Dr. Lori Com. Coming up next year on CJD, we bring you the CTV National News. Have a great rest of the evening. Stay safe and remember to live your life with passion.